Well, good morning again, everyone. It's great to be in worship with you. And if you are just joining us for the first time, uh, we're going through a series on the book of Acts called The Birth of the Church, where we're looking at as particularly around the event of Pentecost, which we celebrate in the Christian calendar this morning, where the Holy Spirit came upon the church and created this worldwide movement. Why did he come to these people? In what way? And why was it so significant and so powerful? Well, this is our New Testament reading from Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are coming this morning from many different directions, many different trajectories, with many different hopes and expectations And Father, some of us have expectations that every Sunday ought to be like what happened to these apostles. We have expectations that are set too high or unrealistically. Others of us have expectations that are set too low, that maybe you can't work in the way that you did 2,000 years ago, that maybe you can't step into our lives and our hearts in a real and tangible way. Some of us have believed these things very deeply for many years, and we're coming to be encouraged, to be reminded, to be renewed in our hope that the Spirit is real and that the Spirit still moves in our midst, and I pray that those hopes would not go unmet. Others of us are coming with big question marks in our head about whether this could possibly be true, whether the Holy Spirit actually exists, whether God is who, whether you are who you claim to be. God, I pray that these expectations, that these hopes would be challenged, that these, that these questions would be answered. Lord, I pray that as we go through this passage, that you would help us to understand, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the uh, office ended this week, and some of you are very, very sad. Some of you are surprised that it's still on television, and still others don't know what I'm talking about. But The Office is the long-running sitcom on NBC where Michael Scott is the bumbling boss, and he always leaves people a little bit off-kilter. He says inappropriate things, and he never quite gets the relational dynamics that surround him. He's always just outside the inner circle, just outside the conversation in some significant way. And he said in one episode, I love inside jokes, and I'd love to be a part of one someday. (laughs) He's the perpetual outsider. He has this deep longing to belong. 
This is true of all of us, isn't it? Don't we have this longing to belong somewhere? Everyone wants to belong. And that's why many of you are here this morning, to find a sense of belonging, to find a place, to answer the question of where do I belong? What kind of community can I be a part of? And is this the type of community that would meet those needs, that would answer those questions? Some of you are excited to be here. Some of you are skeptical. And some of you are a little bored. But we need to ask a different question from this passage. Not what kind of community simply do I want to belong to, but what kind of community does God desire for me to belong to? And what kind of community does God desire this place, this church, to be? And we see as Pentecost happens to these disciples, to these apostles, and all of those who had gathered in these homes and synagogues, that when the Holy Spirit was poured out, we see three vital signs of a community that is alive with Pentecost, that is alive with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Three vital signs to practicing Pentecost. One is a community that's devoted to Scripture. Secondly, a community that's devoted to one another. And then thirdly, a community that's devoted to celebration. And if you're a Christian this morning, this is the type of community that you need to belong to. This is the kind of community that in town longs to be. Some of these things we're pretty good at, and some of them we're not so good at. And we need you. We need your help to be a part of helping us, assisting us to become this sort of community that's devoted to Scripture, devoted to one another, devoted to celebration. And if you're not yet a Christian, if you're looking in from the outside, this is a place where we hope you can explore, to ask your questions. We can't promise that the answers will be all the time perfectly palatable. There may be some answers to your questions that you actually don't like at all, but we can promise you this, that because we want to be this type of community, that this will be a safe place for those with doubts. First of all, let's look at these in order. First of all, a community devoted to Scripture. Verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles are the early leaders of the church. They're the appointed people to take this message around the Mediterranean basin and to the whole world. And what was this message? What was on their lips? What was in their lives? It was Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Maybe you remember, if you were here during our our study of Luke, what Jesus said about the Old Testament. In Luke 24, he opened the disciples' minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. He was explaining to them that all of the little stories of the Old Testament pointed to the one big story that coalesced in him. 
The Columbia River, if you, uh, you may know, is the largest river that empties into the Pacific Ocean. More water comes out of the Columbia River into the Pacific Ocean than any other uh, river. And where does all this river come, all this water come from? Well, it comes from the Snake River. It comes from the Willamette. It comes from the Deschutes. It comes from the John Day River. And all of these rivers, all of these tributaries, all of these streams find their way to a single destination in the Pacific Ocean. And the Old Testament is full of stories like that, stories that are streams, that when you're in them, you're not sure where it's going to ultimately lead. And then it turns into a tributary. And then it funnels into the river that finally dumps into the primary point, and that is Jesus, his life and death and resurrection. And what he is saying is that all of those stories, all of those little streams and tributaries fed into me as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And all over Acts, we see the apostles explaining the Old Testament in light of Jesus, in light of his life, in light of what has just happened in his death and resurrection. And so we see that God's word, what these disciples, what these apostles, these early churches were committed to when we say they're devoted to Scripture, that Scripture is not a collection just of rules. It's not simply a worldview. It's not simply a book of doctrine, but it's a story. It's a dramatic story about a God who comes and bears our shame and our sin And we see that God's people, this Christian community, because the Holy Spirit came upon them, that they gathered around God's Word, that they were devoted to Scripture. This devoted conveys this passionate, intense dedication. And it's a a, a habitual persistence. What we see in Acts 2, that the practice of Pentecost is learning and living this story. Now, why is this so important to understand? Why do we need to see Scripture as a dramatic narrative of what God has done? Why do we need to understand that it's a story? The reason is that we all live by them. We all live by stories, stories that we tell ourselves, stories that are told to us by others. Jonathan Gottschall is a a literary theorist. He's a professor, and he wrote last year a book called The Storytelling Animal. And he says, human minds yield helplessly to the suction of a story. No matter how hard we concentrate, no matter how deep we dig in our heels, we just can't resist the gravity of alternative worlds. Even scientific studies suggest that we spend about half our waking hours, one-third of our lives on earth, spinning fantasies. We daydream about the past, things we should have said or done working through our victories and failures. We daydream about mundane stuff, such as imagining different ways of handling conflict at work. But we also daydream in a much more intense, story-like way. We screen films with happy endings in our minds where all our wishes, vain, aggressive, dirty, come true. And we also screen screen little horror films, too, in which our worst fears are realized. We live by stories. We're constantly showing stories in the viewpoint of our mind. 
And these stories give us a sense of belonging, a sense of self-worth, a sense of ultimate hope and what we're living for. They give us an identity. We see ourselves in these stories as the valedictorian, the person who did it all. We see ourselves as the intelligent person who always has an answer for every problem that they encounter. We see ourselves in these, in these stories as the attractive one, the person who lights up a room, the person whose eyes are on them all the time. In these stories, maybe we identify as the stable friend. We're always there when someone's in need. But the sad reality of these stories is that an identity that's rooted ultimately in performance is a very fragile identity. We say, I know who I am in certain circumstances, but what happens when the situation changes? What happens when you encounter someone who's more competent than you are in your dreams? What happens when you encounter a mountain of a problem that can't be moved by your story, by your identity? There's an alternative story to live by, and that's the story, the drama of redemption that plays out in the Scripture. And the, scripture, the story of Scripture is the story of God's grace that's given to failures, that's coming upon people that don't deserve it, that's coming upon people who aren't even looking for it. That's an alternative story that gives us an entirely different reality and identity, not based upon what we have done or will do, but based upon what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. Robert Capon is a, a person that you hear us quote a good bit here. and He says, Grace takes the agency of salvation out of human hands, whereas the heart's desire of every child of Adam and Eve is to keep it there, to strive endlessly to find something that we can do to make ourselves legitimate. Grace makes all our efforts to legitimize ourselves irrelevant because it proclaims us already legitimated by the work of someone else, without a single effort on our part. Ultimately, friends, we can live by the story of what we have done or what we promised to do, or we can live by the story of what Jesus has already done for us in the gospel. And so the question is, what story are you living by this morning personally? And what story is our church living by? is what compels us to just become big, to become significant in the eyes of other churches and other Christians, or is our identity to, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, to see him at the center? And that will only happen if we are a community that's devoted to Scripture, to the story contained in the Bible. And what this means is not saying that as a community that we happen to know the most Bible verses, that we're the most theologically sophisticated, but it's a community that's fundamentally shaped by and upheld by and promoted by the Holy Spirit and the gospel, a community whose members understand themselves and each other through the work of Jesus. And this is the kind of community that in town longs to be. This passage says that these early communities, though not perfect, were communities that were devoted to the Scriptures, but also a community that's devoted 
to one another. You see, when the Holy Spirit comes upon these people, it didn't just change their minds, but it changed their lives. And one area that it changed them was how they related to one another. It says in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. Fellowship is the word for the common life that they held together, that they had together. It was what they shared in common. And according to the verses immediately after that, 44 through 46, they were so deeply involved in each other's lives that they shared belongings, they shared meals, they shared everything together. And this is all the more amazing when you read back a few chapters to see the amazing diversity that existed in these early churches. We read in chapter 2 the list of different nationalities that were present and responding to Peter's preaching. And throughout Acts, we see this church that's pictured as multicultural, as multiracial, as multilingual. They had all of these enormous boundaries, enormous hurdles to get over in order to be devoted to one another. And what we're meant to ask in our own small groups, in our own families, in our own church, is how could these people have anything in common? How could these people who were separated by such hurdles of linguistics, of ethnicity, of background, of age, of gender, grow to be, grow to be devoted to one another in such a deep way? And this is the point. And this is what we see expounded throughout Acts is that the gospel breaks down these barriers, that the gospel breaks down social classes and economic classes and ethnic groupings. Because they shared a common Savior, they shared a common life together. Now, we need to be careful not to romanticize these early churches or the early church because it was often a mess. And they often disagreed over things. And this type of commonality, this type of devotion to one another never comes easy. There are all sorts of conflicts and disagreement, but they were devoted to one another. They made sacrifices for one another. It says, verse 45, that they were selling their possessions, distributing as anyone has need. Every sermon or American commentary deals with this issue to try and explain how the early church was not a group of socialists. But we're kind of importing our categories back into a discussion that wasn't meant to hold those, those discussions. We need to be careful not to import our political categories into these verses. They weren't expositing a form of government, but a way of life. They simply saw needs among their friends and didn't wait for others to meet those needs. There was a devotedness to one another that trumped their self-interest. There was a common attribute, a common salvation, a common mission that was fundamentally superior to every issue of difference. As they had experienced the grace and hospitality of Jesus, they were interested in extending that same hospitality to one another and to those around them and even to the whole world, materially, spiritually, physically, emotionally, and beyond just these types of support, or actually what these types of support are based upon, is one other thing that they were devoted to, and probably is more difficult. They made time for one another. In two times in this passage, we read day by day. 
that they, they didn't categorize their lives based upon here's what we do on Sunday morning and here's what I do on Monday, that it infiltrated their whole life together. Their shared life was based upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and the work that the Holy Spirit was doing in their midst. They were doing all of this on a regular basis. And regularity is so critical because it's the only way that people can catch you being you. We've always had this instinct to divide our public and our private lives. That we put on a face, we put on a mask, we cultivate this public image that may or may not correspond with our private lives. We want people to see the stories that we have about ourselves. We want them to think about us in the way that we daydream about us, ourselves. And so we cultivate this public life. And as the social media world has exploded, that instinct has become just set free. And I see this in my own life. Online, in real time, we can promote ourselves endlessly. We can cultivate an online life that's carefully tailored to our audience. And we get this illusion of companionship without the demands of real relationship, of intimacy. We confuse postings and online sharing with authentic communication. And I'm not a Luddite. I'm on Facebook and some of the other devices and and platforms. And I'm not saying that they're intrinsically evil, but that they do tap into this instinct for us to self-promote. They tap into this instinct for us to tailor-make this customized image that we promote ourselves, that we present to the world. And it doesn't demand anything of us like a real relationship does. Real relationships require getting past the public and private divide. We need to get past this cultivated life and into people's real lives. And more difficult than stepping into someone else's life is that we need to drop our guard and let other people in to grant access to people even if it makes us uncomfortable because that's how you grow spiritually. That's what is demanded of us as a church if we are going to say we are a gospel-centered church. One of the vital signs of a spirit-filled community is people pursuing one another in love. And this is the type of community that we long to be. A community devoted to Scripture, a community devoted to one another, and finally, a community devoted to celebration. They were devoted to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. What Acts, what Luke is telling us is that to be a gospel-centered church, to be a church that's founded upon Jesus is to be a community that's devoted to joyful celebration of God and his gifts. And this happened in small informal gatherings where they shared meals together in each other's homes, but it also happened in larger, more formal gatherings. They came to the temple, it says, and they came to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Even in these early days, there was a a sort of scriptedness to what happened. There was an expectation that certain things would take place in these communities as as they gathered. There were prayers. There was a, a liturgy, if you will, to these early gatherings. 
they took the Lord's Supper and they said the prayers together. And both of these, these small informal gatherings as well as the large formal gathering, are necessary. They're necessary to flourishing spirituality, you need, flourishing spiritually. You need to gather in small groups. And that's why we have our community group system so that you can get involved in each, each other's lives across the table sharing a meal together so that you can be aware when someone has a baby, when someone loses a job, when someone is in need. But also, you need the regular corporate gathering of church each Sunday to spiritually flourish. Both of these, not one, are prescribed. And why does Scripture focus, why does Luke focus us here on gathering? What were they gathering to do? They were gathering to worship. And this implies And you see this throughout Scripture, that all of us are worshipers. We're all made to worship. And even secular literature tells us this over and over. You read Oscar Wilde, read Emerson, read David Foster Wallace, read Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky says, so long as a man remains free, he strives for nothing so incessantly and so painfully as to find someone to worship What the Bible says is that we are made to worship, but that our instinct has been corrupted. Our instinct has gone awry. The direction of our worship has gone in a way away from God, and that sin has caused our affections to stray from God, the one who can fulfill what we're looking for. And that it's propelled us to worship relationships, worship our children, worship our job, worship everything and anything but God himself. And so the question is, what do you really celebrate? And why do you celebrate it? Christian community is meant to be a community that constantly celebrates God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. And that's the object of worship that will never leave us feeling stupid, feeling like a fraud, feeling like we're on the verge of being found out. What Jesus says is that you've already been found out and you're loved. He knows everything about you, even those things that would petrify you to share with other people. He knows you've already been found out and you're loved. And you'll never exhaust that love. You'll never convince him to stop loving you. And this is the object of worship that's so compelled the early church that's so different than everything that you and I have tried before. And when this is the center, what happens? The Lord added to their number day by day to those who were being saved. You see, the boundary lines of this community were not high. The boundary lines were permeable. People were coming in and around this community constantly. Some believed, some didn't. But this community was not an impenetrable fortress that only those with the the right clothing, only those with the right ethnicity, the right look, the right verbiage, the right theology, the right personality and morality could get in. It wasn't an impenetrable fortress, but it was a permeable community where non-Christians came in, where people from different backgrounds, different belief systems came in to investigate and hear Jesus presented as an alternative object of worship. It was a community of grace that welcomed all types of sinners. 
There's a story that I've been longing to tell you guys for a long time, and I thought I had, and so I think I kept putting it off because I thought that I had shared it before. And maybe I have, but I did an exhaustive search in my sermon notes, and I couldn't find it. But it's a story uh, that's told by uh, another pastor, Tony Campolo. And he was in Hawaii to do a seminar, but he, he flew in very late at like two in the morning, and he tried to go to sleep and couldn't go to sleep. And so he went out and walked around and finally ended up in a diner, just a greasy spoon type of diner about 3 a.m. And he was sitting there eating, and all of a sudden, all of these boisterous, loud, cursing, smoking women comes in, and they surround him, and they're swearing and smoking, and they're a bunch of prostitutes. And they've just sort of gotten off work, and they've come to eat. And they're surrounding this pastor who's sitting there, not knowing what to make of it. And he hears one of them, Agnes, talking about the fact that it's her birthday. And she tells another friend, you know, it's my birthday tomorrow. And the other lady says, why are you telling me that? What what do you want me to do, get you a present? And she says, no, I just wanted someone to know that it was my birthday. And so they leave and... Tony sticks around, and he talks to the owner and says, hey, um, do you know those ladies that came in? And sure, we know them. They're here every night. Well, who is the one who said it was her birthday? Well, that's Agnes. And so Tony, coming in just off the plane, says, well, why don't we throw a birthday party for her tomorrow night? Do they always come in at the same time? And he said, yes. And they thought that would be a fantastic idea. So they come back at 2.30, decorate the place. There's banners everywhere. There's a cake that someone has made that says Agnes on it. And so they arrive early, and Agnes comes in to this great surprise and happy birthday, and it's a celebration. And she's just utterly falling apart. And they give her this cake, and they're about to cut it. And she says, no, no, please don't cut the cake. Is that okay if we don't cut the cake? Because I want to take it home and save it. And so she takes the cake home from the party while it's still going and walks a few blocks to drop it off. And so as everyone is there, still gathered, Tony says, well, why why don't we pray for Agnes? It's a group of prostitutes. Why don't we pray for Agnes? And they say, sure, okay. And he goes into this prayer for Agnes and for her life and that God would be good to her. And then the manager gets a little ticked off. He was fine with the birthday party, but he says, you didn't tell me this was going to be a religious event. Who are you? And Tony says, well, I'm a pastor. Well, what kind of pastor? I'm the kind of pastor of the type of church which throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. in the morning. And he says, no, you're not, because there's no such thing as a church like that. If there was a church like that, even I would go to church. The gospel tells us, friends, that we're all needy. None of us has it all together. Our lives are broken in obvious ways and not so obvious ways. But the gospel also says that God is able and willing to hold your broken lives together with his grace. And he's committed to not only hold us together, but to renew and remake this church into a community that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3 a.m. in the morning. That's the kind of community that celebrates, that's so amazed at what Jesus has done in their lives that they want other people 
to experience it as well. And they make no demands upon who comes in the door. That's the kind of community that in town longs to be. Let's pray that that would be true of us. Father, we do in fact pray that, that we would be enthralled by the gospel, that we would be captured with the hope of Jesus, that that would be what reigns in our hearts, that that would be our identity, that that would be our central focus, our true place of worship. I pray that we would gather together, that we would be real with one another, that we would allow each other into our lives, and that we would allow other people into the life of this church, inviting them, going out to meet them, and that we would be a church that celebrates the gospel, that celebrates Jesus. I pray that that would be true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.